for the prosecuting attorneys who have worked on this case tirelessly for many years. This has been an unprecedented and historic multi-county prosecution. To all of the police officers, detectives, and investigators who spent decades, long past retirement in many times, to help get us to this day. To our crime labs and to crime victim advocates across the state of California, and most importantly, to the victims and their families, thank you for being part of what I call Team Justice. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. We also have an opportunity to talk about unique techniques, innovative ideas, and truly inspirational stories that have come out of these tragedies and these horrific cases. Perhaps there is no better example uh, of these type of unique techniques and innovative ideas than the case of People versus Joseph D'Angelo. This is the fourth of a four-part series talking about the Golden State Killer, the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, and the East Area Rapist. In this fourth and final episode, we will talk with uh, perhaps one of the greatest teams that's ever been put together, what I often call Team Justice. I have the honor today of being joined by members of the prosecution team, Tin Ho, Amy Holiday, Cheryl Temple, Debbie Lloyd, Kelly Duncan Scott, and Dave Alavezos. Welcome everybody, and thank you for joining me. Uh, if I could just start and ask each of you, and I'll, I'll, let's say I just start here with Amy Holiday. If you can all introduce yourselves and tell us briefly kind of about your background and, and what brought you to this case. Thank you, Anne-Marie. My name is Amy Holiday. I'm an Assistant Chief Deputy for Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. Um, I've been there for almost 20 years and I was lucky enough uh, shortly after D'Angelo was arrested, uh, you and uh, your chief deputy called me up and asked to see me and asked if I wanted to participate in this case. And I, I did not hesitate. I believe my words were, hell yes. And uh, very excited to be part of Team Justice and glad to be here today. Thank you. Amy, just to highlight, because I think you're underselling yourself a little bit, is you've had an extraordinary career of doing primarily violent crimes in our office sexual assault, homicide. You also head up our cold case team in our office. So I'm going to give you that little shout out there. Um, so let me move now to Tin Ho. How about you, Tin? If you could tell the, the listeners your background and, and what kind of brought you to this case. My name is Tin Ho. I'm an assistant chief at the Sacramento District Attorney's Office. I've been at the Sacramento DA's office for almost 18 years. I've prosecuted serial rapists and child molesters for many years. I've also prosecuted uh, gang cases and I was on the homicide team for about four years when I was assigned the East Area Rapist or Golden State Killer case. I've uh, probably tried close to 100 jury trials in my career and I was truly honored to have been um, put on what I believe is the greatest prosecution team ever assembled um, to prosecute a particular case. So thank you so much. 
Yeah, thanks for joining us, Tina. I appreciate it. All right, Kelly Duncan, how about you? Hi, um, so I'm Kelly Duncan, and um, I'm a Chief Deputy DA in Santa Barbara County. Um, I've been with the office there since 2012, and at the time um, of the Golden State Killer case, the rest, I had a mix of responsibility of administration, supervision, and some of my own casework. I was working on some um, gang murder cases, and, but one of my duties was um, cold case uh, homicides, and I was liaison with our office and law enforcement on cold cases. And so that's how I got involved with uh, this amazing team and the Golden State Killer case. Excellent. Thanks, Kelly. All right. How about you, Cheryl Temple? Uh, hi, I'm Cheryl Temple. I am retired now, but I was uh, a chief deputy for Ventura County DA's office with the time I got the case. And, you know, it's funny, Amory, I was actually out on leave, uh, an extended maternity leave at the time of the arrest. And I'd been talking with Greg Totten, the DA at the time about coming back to the office. You know, when I was going to come back, I was going to come back into management. And that was part of the discussions, you know, at home with my husband was, well, I'm going to be going back. You know, we have, we have kids, but it'll be in management. I won't be taking on any serious trials. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, I had a lengthy career in homicides, handling multiple high-profile homicide cases for Ventura County DA's office uh, before I'd gone into management, before I went out on leave. Uh, but anyway, I, I still remember at the time of the arrest, uh, I was already talking with Greg about coming back. The plan was to come back in, in management. Um, but it was silent at the dinner table because, uh, of course, we all knew about this case and we were also in incredibly amazed by the arrest. And uh, given my background, I was sort of hoping that it might come my way. And uh, it did. I got lucky enough uh, to be joined up with the rest of the team. And yeah, it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad you're part of it. How about Debbie Lloyd? From down from yes, the hi. Thank you. Hi, yes. My name is Deborah Lloyd, and I am with the Orange County District Attorney's Office. I'm a senior deputy district attorney. Um, I made my way through the ranks and ended up uh, doing three years on sexual assault and then nine years in homicides. Uh, actually, Irvine was one of my jurisdictions that I have, and I knew about the case, but at that time, it was a cold case, even though it was continually worked on. Um, I retired. Actually, what I did after homicides is I was uh, promoted to assistant uh, district attorney, and then I uh, helped start the DNA unit, which is now the science and te technology unit. I worked there for three to four years, and then I retired after 25 years. I was gone seven years and uh, enjoying it immensely because my problem is, is I enjoy retirement and I enjoy my work. But I met with uh, Jen Contini, who remained a friend of mine, and she was just put up in the uh, DNA unit because Camille Hill had passed away. And she, during our lunch, she was telling me that uh, uh, they needed some help. They needed more D DAs. Uh, they were short of DAs. And 
I thought, well, maybe, sure, I can help for a couple weeks, maybe, um, you know, clean up some cases or whatever. And then she called me back and said, hey, listen, we have this case. It's the Golden State Killer case. And I said immediately, yes, I would come back and work on it. Then I got a call from the DA and um, the assistant uh, DA, uh, Jim Tonazaki, both of them, within a day. And we arranged for me to come back. I want to back up a little bit because uh, I didn't uh, I didn't mention that the reason that we were even starting a uh, a task force was because Anne Marie Schubert had uh, addressed RDA and asked him if he would join in. And so that's why we even began uh, our, our part of the task force. And during that time, we uh, ended up having quite a few people from our office on the team doing DNA, doing discovery, and uh, also me doing a lot of the work too. So um, anyway, it was because we were asked and uh, we definitely wanted to be a part of the group. Yeah, it was a great group of people. And that was even before the arrest took place, right, Debbie? The that is correct. That was uh, over a year before the arrest took place. And so we were basically working on it for a year uh, when uh, we got word that he was arrested um, um, by you. Excellent. All right, Dave Alavezos from the Central Valley here. All right. Um, much like Kelly Duncan, I, when I came into the team, I was in management. Uh, my career had started out in a different county. I ended up in Tulare County and pretty quickly ended up on the homicide team. Eventually ended up becoming a supervisor and supervised the homicide team for about 12 years before becoming assistant DA. Um, this particular case, the ransacker aspect of it was something that was talked about over and over again. Uh, every time an old case would come in, uh, they would start looking at it, where, what were the ties, that kind of thing. And so I'd been hearing about it and uh, probably a week or two before the arrest, uh, my boss, uh, Tim Ward said, hey, um, there's something that's gonna break pretty soon and started filling me in on it. And the next thing I knew he said, and, and I'd like you to head up the prosecution of it from our office. Let me ask you all this. Um, I mean, obviously this was a really big case. How, how did you find out and how did you feel about the arrest? Before we get to the assignment of being the prosecutor, how did you feel about the arrest and, and, and how did you find out? Uh, start, how about Kelly Duncan over here? Well, um, I found out about the arrest uh, the day it happened as I was sitting here at my desk and I got a call from my DA, Joyce Dudley. And I had, I, I, I was floored. I, um, I had heard about this case for many, many years. The Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office um, cold case detective would routinely update me on, you know, various developments and leads they were following. And then I had met you, Anne-Marie, in, uh, at a conference in 2016 when you were talking about setting up this task force. And I thought, wow, it sounds really interesting. And I that was the first time I'd heard of investigative genetic genealogy and I was intrigued. But for so many years, I had thought, look, there's no way this guy is still alive. I, I just, I thought it was improbable and, but I was intrigued by it. And so I was completely unaware of, of the developments that had taken place that recently. And when the arrest was made, I was 
shocked and so excited and and just struck by your persistence and all the investigators who'd worked on this, their persistence in continuing to seek justice after all these years. Um, so that that was a pretty unique moment. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Cheryl, how about you? Oh gosh, I, I it's so funny, Kelly. You mentioned you know what we all thought leading up to the arrest because all of us, of course, knew about uh, the case. You know who was the Golden State Killer? Who was the East Area Rapist? And I started at the Venture DA's office in 1997, and it was right around that time, 97, 98, when we first made the connection between our murders to the murders in Santa Barbara, to the rapes in Contra Costa, the murders in Orange County. And we knew, based on the Contra Costa connection to Sacramento, that we were dealing with an up and down the state serial killer. Uh, with a swath of destruction, the likes of with likes of which you know the state really hadn't seen before, and in our county, you know, uh, our victims, Lyman Smith, had been a prosecutor in our office. You know, so you can imagine at the time when that murder happened, it it just shook the legal community and our office in particular to its core, and so much energy was expended to try and identify who had murdered Lyman and Charlene. Uh, and it, it really was uh, uh, the most notorious, I, I think, unsolved murder in our county. And so I, I kind of grew up as a prosecutor with that case in the background. Um, my career experience there was somewhat unique in that I started out and very quickly went into homicides. Uh, I'd clerked in the homicide unit as a, a law student back in the 90s. And so I went into trying major crimes really right away and was mentored by some of the prosecutors who had really worked on that case and the detectives who had worked that case. Uh, so when, when I found out that they'd actually arrested him, you know, like, like Kelly said, there was all the speculation, is he even still alive? You know, when CODIS came about in the 2000s, uh, is that going to yield any results? And when that didn't pan out after so many years, uh, everyone, I think, just sort of gave up hope, but it was always sort of out there. And so hearing that there had been an arrest, hearing that that identified him, it was, it was truly, truly, I don't, I don't know that you can describe that feeling um, as a prosecutor, and particularly in our county, and in part because because he had worked in our office, our victim had, um, that it, it was really meaningful uh, for us. So it was definitely a moment that will not be repeated in my lifetime. Awesome, thank you very much for that, Cheryl. Tinho, how about you? Let me take it a step back. At the time that Joseph D'Angelo was arrested, I was assigned to homicides. And my office was immediately right next to the office of um, the head of major crimes, Rod Norgard. And on that particular day when D'Angelo was arrested, I saw um, Rod and our chief deputy at the time, Steve Grippy, they were running around, they were talking, something was going on and nobody knew what it was. And so my office, the wall between my office and the head of major crimes is, is really thin. You could pretty much hear what's going on and what's being said in the other room, especially if you put your ear up to the wall. And so, See, and you may not I, want that being known publicly. That's all right. So I put my ear up against the wall and lo and behold, I, I heard the two of them say something to the extent of, you know, one in 16 septillion matched to the EAR. And for people in Sacramento County, EAR means only one thing, the East Area Rapist. And so 
when I saw on the news the next morning at 4.30 in the morning, and that's when I woke up. And first thing I did was I checked the news. I saw that he had been arrested. I felt a, an immense sense of pride, pride um, on behalf of the district attorney's office for not only Sacramento, the other counties, but uh, law enforcement that never gave up and, and that we were able to identify it and catch him and bring him to justice. But most of all, I think I felt an immense sense of relief, relief for all the victims that now um, had an answer and a face and a name to who had tormented um, and destroyed so many lives across the state of California. Well, for the listeners out there, I think that's the first time I've heard about the eavesdropping that occurred in the DA's office. So uh, <laughs> there's a inside the crime stories right there for you all. So how about uh, Dave Alavezos? Um, you know, that the, we hear the news that he had been arrested and there was a very, very quick tie to his early employment. And one of the frustrating things for me was rather than being uh, called a, you know, a retired um, diesel mechanic or something along those lines, he was the police officer who was raping and killing people up and down the state. And the first thing everybody wanted to know was, um, you know, what information do you have on him as a police officer in Exeter from 1975? Um, I believe the total personnel file was one piece of paper on a, like a five by seven index card. But that was the focus in our county. That and um, when are you going to file? Are you going to file on him? Because initially, um, obviously, Tulare County didn't have DNA. So we needed to go through uh, yet again and look at all of those police reports and look for those um, signature aspects of the crime that tied him in. And then also look at all of the Sacramento cases, the Contra Costa County cases, uh, to look for the signature aspect of the crimes. And so uh, immediately, uh, Tim called me into his office and I knew that there was gonna be a lot of reading over the next few months. No doubt about that. Um, all right, how about uh, Amy Holiday? Well, I was the misdemeanor supervisor at the time and there'd been some management meetings the couple of days before the arrest and you could feel the energy uh, it was palpable in the office and I knew something big was going to happen. I didn't know what. I didn't eavesdrop like tin. That's good to but, know. No eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> but I could definitely feel uh, an energy that something big was was about to happen and I didn't grow up in Sacramento but I certainly had a lot of friends that did and had heard about the East Area Rapist and that's how I knew um, him was East Area Rapist and so when the news of the arrest came it was just it was huge um, a lot of friends were texting and calling and, you know, asking if it was true. And like I said, I only knew him as East Area Rapist. So I got my hands on a book uh, that day and read, just poured over it to learn about all the different crimes and didn't sleep very well that night after knowing what he had done. But uh, it was definitely huge news um, all over the state and very exciting for our office. Yes, it was. That's for sure. Um, all right, Debbie Lloyd, having, you were, had been on the, the team for about a year when the arrest came in. So tell us about you know, how you felt and how you found out. All right, I had gone up, uh, I had taken a week off and had gone up and uh, driven up to uh, up by Yosemite where my folks live for a, a week's vacation. And I'll always remember getting the call. It was the next day um, after getting there 
And uh, it was 6.30 in the evening and I got the call that uh, uh, GSK had been arrested. And it was just surreal. And I have to say, it was um, one of those things where you always remember where you were. I remember as if it was yesterday, exactly where I was standing, exactly who I was talking to and my exact feelings. Within 10 minutes, I was in my car driving back to Orange County, got there about one in the morning, and I had about six hours to really think about everything and think about, you know, him being captured and, and you know, just how amazing it would be for the victims, uh, families and the victims. And I uh, got home about one in the morning, was on a plane back at Orange County about six in the morning and uh, got up to, uh, to Sacramento. So um, it was it was something that I'll never forget. It was amazing. And uh, uh, just to this day, I still think about it. So let me ask you all kind of as a group here, uh, individually is, you know, this is without a doubt, probably the largest prosecution in history. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen as many counties come together. Um, what, what was it like in terms of, you know, the pressure or working together as a team. I mean, it's extraordinary to have so many counties come together. So let me start with Dave. Um, what was it, you know, what, what was the pressure like? And how did you feel about being part of this team? I'm not certain the word pressure comes to mind. Um, I got up there not knowing what to expect, but right away, it was quite obvious that uh, everybody involved in the case were experienced, very intelligent, organized, and one of the concerns I've always had in doing a case with other people is what am I, you know, going to not find out and the other person on the team doesn't find out. I never had that feeling. Um, when I was a young prosecutor, uh, we had another rather major uh, national prosecution team that was in existence. And I remember watching that and reading books afterwards and there seemed to be some dysfunction. Um, I didn't feel that we had that. I didn't feel like anybody was out there for their own ego. And it felt like we all worked together extremely well and we knew that each other was going to take care of their part of the case. Excellent, excellent. Debbie Lloyd, how about you? Um, yes, actually, just like Dave, I don't think I felt pressure um, uh, I did feel like there was a lot of work to do. There was ended up being over 1.3 million pages of discovery to go through. So there was a lot of, a lot of work still to be done. And it was just amazing everything we learned after the arrest about Mr. D'Angelo. And so we were continually learning that, but just like Dave, um, I just, it was amazing the group we had. I'm each one I have just so much respect for and, uh, and just dealing with them. And they, they were just, every single one was top notch. Uh, with Tian, I, I think I spoke to Tian mostly and Tian, you and I probably spoke on the way to work, on the way after work, two to three times a week. And just, there's, there was a lot to talk about, right? Um, uh, and so it was just an amazing experience. It was such a good experience and I just have so much respect for everybody. Great. Uh, how about uh, Cheryl Temple? Yeah, you know, Anne-Marie, I gotta say, Sacramento was ahead of the curve uh, given that COVID was gonna hit uh, because we were doing these video meetings. Do you remember that guys? We'd all, at least once a week, we'd get together and I can't even remember the name of the software now, it was before Zoom. Uh, but we, we really did 
uh, gosh, the, the teamwork was phenomenal. But I, I wanted to to mention one other thing that may be unique from my my perspective, because I was not the first prosecutor assigned to the case since I had other management responsibilities. It was a, a couple months in before the case was reassigned to me. And so I came on board after, you know, a couple of the initial court appearances, et cetera. And in my early meetings with everyone, not only was I just blown away with the professionalism and the, the comprehensive knowledge of every case from the, the participants on this team, you know, like David said, everybody was just so dialed in. But I remember talking with Amy and Tian about what it was like, the, the atmosphere in court. And I'd never heard anything like this, the media, uh, intense media presence. And, um, you know, we've, we've all handled, I'd say, big cases, you know, I have it in our county, but nothing like what this case presented. And I will confess to feeling a bit of pressure given that type of scrutiny. And to some extent, uh, I think that it encouraged all of us. I mean, we were A-game. Every time we showed up in court, everything that we filed, we would routinely, you know, there was no pride in ownership in anything that we did. It was truly a team effort where every written uh, motion was scrutinized by each member of the team and we all participated. Uh, every discussion of our cases, like Debbie said, you know, we would roundtable things, we'd bounce things off one another um, to make sure that given the scrutiny that we were under, not that we wouldn't have done it in a less uh, high profile case, but it was a different animal given, to me at least, given the, the pressure of the, uh, the media scrutiny. And uh, I made a sort of an offhanded comment to a reporter one time saying, well, look, this is the first time I've ever gotten a phone call from a journalist in France. <laughs> you know, And I, I did, I mean, I had people calling me from out of the country wanting to talk about the case. And I recall Amy and Tien describing perhaps, you know, you guys should, should do it best um, or talk best about what it was like having the media hound you outside the courtroom. Uh, so, and I'm sorry, I'm ramped, almost forgetting your question, but the, the, <laughs> the magnitude of this case, the pressure, it was real. And I think it, it forced a, a cohesiveness and a, an attention to detail and uh, encouraged all of us, I think, to really uh, work well together and work hard together. Well, there's no question you did that. How about, Tin Ho, how about you? You know, in terms of pressure, um, I, we never really, at least from my perspective, I never really had time to feel the pressure because we were constantly getting the discovery together, organizing it, review the materials. And so I never really had time to feel the pressure. And I also always think that when you're focused on somebody or something else, a greater mission, and that goal is there. You really don't feel the pressure because it's not self-centered. It's focused on the victims um, of the case. But, you know, Debbie mentioned, you know, being on phone calls and stuff. And I had so many phone calls, you know, with Cheryl, with David, with Kelly. And I remember one time I got on the phone with Jim Mulgrew. Uh, Jim is from Orange County and he is sort of the law and motion expert. And there was an issue in regards to <clears throat> that we were getting ready for in regards to a possible severance motion. And so Jim called me up and I was just about to walk in someplace to pick up lunch. An hour and a half later, I'm still sitting in front of that uh, restaurant, never picked up lunch because I had to go back again. But these were constant phone calls. And I have to, to say that after the case resolved, for a couple of months afterwards, I, I was kind of getting a sense of withdrawal. I missed the phone calls. 
Um, mm-hmm. the, the calls to Kelly where she's, you know, at her property down in Santa Barbara, or the call with Dave as he's driving somewhere or with Debbie or, or Cheryl and, and so many um, of people that not only were colleagues, but are now friends. And, and so I, I want to give a shout out to Anne-Marie for sort of bringing us all together again, because it's been a long time since we were all together. And I have to say, I miss talking to all you guys. Oh, before we leave the subject of the group together, Emery, and I don't know if you have a separate question on this, but I, I wanted to, to mention something else. So, you know, we all traveled to Sacramento and there was a time when we didn't know where the case was going to be tried. And ultimately, when it was settled to be in Sacramento, we were all up there for one of the early appearances. And I'm sure you guys all remember this. We all went to dinner after court and you guys up in Sacramento, Emery, you'd set it up. And it was a beautiful restaurant downtown. Um, We all walked in, we had a little room for us. And, uh, you know, we all paid our own way. (laughs) That wasn't it. But while we were there, Amy, you gave this remarkable toast and it stuck with me, um, still does, where you welcomed us all and commented on how difficult it was going to be that you knew to try a case not in your home county, to, to live out of a hotel room, you know, everything that we were all gearing up to do. And you thanked us and it was heartfelt and profound. And it just like was this beautiful welcoming gesture that really kicked it off uh, really nicely. So that was a nice touch, just a little inside nugget that nobody else would know. All, I remember that night, like it was last week. Yeah, Amy, you remember that I'm sure. I do. I, I don't remember it having such a profound effect, but thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> it's really sweet. Um, but no, that is truly how I felt. You know, I felt um, it, the pressure of the case, you know, early on, I thought uh, the, that first appearance with all the media, it was overwhelming. And I just told myself after that, you, you can't let that bother you. This has to be treated just like any other case that you've prosecuted. And I carried that mindset forward. Um, but as far as, as having this group, you know, in Sacramento, I, I did feel some responsibility, like a, like a hostess, to make sure that everyone did feel welcome and had what they needed when they were in Sacramento, because I can only imagine how hard that would be, you know, to be away from your office with this responsibility. So I, I did, I did um, we tried our best to make sure everyone felt welcome and included. And I think the best part about working with this group um, is that the friendships that we made. Um, I know that I could call any of you at any time and you would help me out if I needed something. And so that's been one of the best takeaways from the case for me. I wanna say something about our team that um, was kind of unique to my position. I, when I got assigned this case, which is the day the, the arrest was made, um, my DA said, and so this is your case and I don't know how you're gonna juggle this with this other trial you have coming up. And I thought, yeah, I don't know either, because it looked like the timing would probably collide. But, you know, you, you never know with trials. And so as we sort of move forward and, and we're in the midst of discovery and Amy and Tian were so amazing because they assured me that at any time, um, if I was not available for the prelim, given my other trial, they would take the Santa Barbara cases and they would treat it like their cases. And I had no doubt in my mind, they cared as much about the victims in Santa Barbara County 
Ventura County, Orange County, everywhere than they, you know, as they did their own. And so that, and I, I know that was a testament to your leadership, Anne-Marie, but it was so reassuring to know that they all had my back if timing didn't work out. And then of course COVID happened and it threw all timing out the window. Um, and ultimately everything worked out, but it was so great to have a team behind you that knew your case as well as they knew theirs and would pick up any slack at any time. For so many, there is little doubt that this journey felt like a thousand miles. This journey of passion and persistence finally led to this day, this day of reckoning. For many, it's a nightmare they would wish to forget, but yet a memory that will not fade away. As you know, our case is, was never eligible for the death penalty. So a conviction which granted life without the possibility to parole was always the ultimate goal in our case. Today's court proceeding brings us one step closer to ending the horrific saga of Joseph D'Angelo. His crimes left a lifetime of scars and pain for our victims and for their families. In today's plea hearing, we sought to remember and refocus the attention of all of our entire criminal justice system, state of California, on the many lives that were impacted by this predator. This case serves as an example of the difference between right and wrong and what we believe in and our values as a society. This case was solved because of the dedication of law enforcement. And unfortunately, there will be other victims in the future, and they deserve dedicated law enforcement working to protect them as well. Um, let me ask you all this. I mean, obviously, we all uh, were there for the plea, all were there for the sentencing in the the week of the victim impact statements. And I think for the listeners, um, you know, I, I would want to know how, how did you feel about that? And how, you know, looking back on this case, what are the memories that stand out the most from that process? And let me start with Amy. I think in, you know, speaking with the victims and the victims' families over time and getting to learn their stories and then hearing the victim impact statements and knowing that those impact statements really were just scratching the surface of how things really affected people. I mean, I remember, you know, talking specifically to um, Brian and Katie's family, um, the couple that were murdered in Sacramento and their story and how it's affected their lives was so much bigger and so much more deep than what was expressed at the victim impact statements that um, the level of of pain and devastation that was caused over the years just truly couldn't be expressed, I think, through those victim impact statements. But at the same time, it was so powerful to sit and watch um, our victims, our survivors, um, take back some of that power for themselves and move towards closure. So it was a great day. It was a, 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 a week, really, not to be repeated in history. Kelly. Kelly Duncan, how about you from Santa Barbara? 
Well, so it was so uh, powerful to have uh, the victim impact statements and the plea um, to be so victim centered. And that was, that was really powerful. The fact that he pled to um, not only the charged crimes, but admitted all of those other crimes that were beyond the statute of limitations was just so powerful um, to have happen in, in such a, a moment for the victim. But another thing that kind of has always stuck with me about it is um, one of the, or the lead detective on, on the three Santa Barbara cases um, is in his eighties. And I started meeting with him, um, you know, as the arrest was made and our case was filed and his name is Fred Ray. And, um, he's, you know, getting on in years and his health was failing, but he had like this encyclopedic knowledge of all of these, the facts of every one of those crimes. And he had told me numerous times that in his long career, um, these were the three, only three unsolved homicides. And uh, so he was able to attend the plea and the sentencing. And it was just so remarkable to see these investigators who had worked on these cases for so many years, the victims, and finally see um, some some sort of closure was really remarkable. And so um, that was another unique experience that we got to have. You know, there are a lot of memories from the case, but there's two that stand out. Um, we, Amy and I went down to visit uh, Brian and Katie Majori's family. And when we visited with Katie's brothers, these are two big burly men in their fifties who are either in law enforcement or retired from law enforcement. And we're sitting there in their living room um, down in, in Fresno and literally tears start coming down their faces as they're talking about the impact of Brian and Katie's uh, murder. And in particular, both men talked about how their father uh, stopped celebrating Thanksgiving, Christmas, and any birthdays after Katie passed away. It was as if life had just shut down for that entire family. And so we felt the impact that these crimes had um, on both of them and their families for generations now, and the hole that was left behind there. And the other memory that I've been left with on the case, and I still think about is this, you know what, we had filed special circumstance allegations and sought the death penalty on the case. And then we decided to resolve the case and not seek death penalty. And I have to say that when that decision was made, personally, I was against it. And um, I felt if anybody deserved the death penalty, it was D'Angelo. But there was a moment for me that really changed my mind and my feelings about that. Uh, as many of you recall, um, Phyllis, uh, and she's identified herself, was the first rape victim in Sacramento and Rancho Cordova. Before the plea, she called us up and she said that um, she had cancer. She was diagnosed with cancer and was going through radiation and chemo. And when the plea occurred, she couldn't make it uh, to the Sac State Ballroom. And when the factual basis was read for Phyllis's uh, charge, all the other victims in the ballroom stood up to represent Phyllis and in solidarity and support of Phyllis. And I'll never forget that. And then on the date that um, the impact statement was read, Phyllis's sister 
had to read the statement because Phyllis was in the hospital. And then on the day that Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced and sent off to prison, we're in the Sac State Ballroom and I look across and there's like 200 people there and I see Phyllis, she's there and she had this beautiful smile on her face. And I came over to say hello to her. A couple of months later, Phyllis passed away from cancer. And Phyllis would have never, along with the other victims, had that closure and that sense of justice if we did not resolve the case and handle it the way that we did. And so when I think about the case now, I don't think about D'Angelo. I don't think about his crimes. What we think about and what I think about are people like Phyllis and Chris Pedretti and all the other victims in the case that were able to obtain a measure of justice and closure on the case. And so that's what I think of now. Cheryl, how about you? Well, I wanted to go back to talk about uh, a little bit about when Amy and Tian first started talking to me about the case. You know, in Ventura County, we had our two murder victims, and I'd grown close with Jennifer Carroll, uh, their daughter, uh, over the course of my work on the case. When I, I first went up to Sacramento for one of the court hearings, uh, Amy and Tian had told me that, you know, the victims were all coming, this remarkable group of victims, uh, most of the sexual assault victims, and then, of course, family members from uh, the, the murder victims who were all coming to court. And even though I knew all of the cases, right, we had them all mapped out. We knew how many victims there were. We knew of their, their family and even extended family. I don't know that I was truly prepared to see what that was really like, you know, the impact of the case. And in court hearings, uh, you know, you go and frequently the victims show up and the victims' families show up. And we were there this one time and the, the attorneys would go on one side and then the victims were, were brought into the courtroom through another way so that they had enough seating. Again, given the, the intense public interest in the case, the seating was really premium. And I remember watching them start coming in and they keep coming and they keep coming and they kept coming. And these these women that were so strong and men and their their loved ones who came with every person that came in it just you know weighs on your heart you realize just how vicious this particular defendant was and how many people he hurt uh and you know, you hear the number, you know, in excess of 50, you, you hear those numbers tossed around, but when you really see it, um, it was, it was really profound. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I only really had contact with Jennifer Carroll uh, down in Ventura County, direct contact with victims, even though I knew all the others. And there was one court appearance where we went and uh, you know, the lawyers were standing outside of the entrance where we were to go in and the victims were sort of accumulating down the hallway in a different uh, location so that they could get escorted in. And I saw them standing out there, you know, and they know who we are. We're all standing there with our suits and, and I knew who they were. And I, I walked over there because it was sort of, you know, this moment and I just introduced myself, you know, because you all, Amy and Tim, you, you all knew them already. You'd had so many meetings with them. And I said, hi, you know, I, I, I know you know who we all are down there. I know who you are. My name's Cheryl Temple. I'm from Ventura County. I'm, I'm here to handle the prosecution related to the murder of Lyman and Charlene Smith. I just wanted to introduce myself and thank you for coming. And they, they turned to me as a group. They were just lovely, also strong. Clearly, so many of them were close, close friends. And I remember Phyllis, you know, Tian, you just mentioned her specifically reaching out with her hand. And she said, hi, I'm Phyllis. I'm number one. And she shook my hand. 
And then another victim would reach out her hand, gave her name by, by number, I'm number six, I'm number 15, I'm number 12, I'm number 32. And they introduced themselves to me by rape victim number from the Sacramento area. And it was so telling that they had lived with this crime for so long that it had become you know, sort of a part of their identity. And it was, it was very moving uh, to, to, to meet them, that group, their strength and, and feel their pain and see how it manifested itself and how it really changed the, the arc of their lives. And so then going forward, you know, jumping ahead to the, the plea that you were just talking about, Tian, you know, realizing that whatever we do in court, you know, and we all had the, the wisdom to realize that not much was going to change, even the realities of D'Angelo's age and everything else. And, and I think we did the right thing in, in resolving the case. And Emory, that was a gutsy decision, Emory, and I give you great credit for that. Um, but watching the victims be able to take this back, there was no circus around him. It was their story, their moment, their recognition that, you know what, we didn't give up, we stuck together, we're still here. And he didn't beat them. Uh, that, was, that was really, really powerful. Uh, so th those moments really, those stuck with me and will. Yeah. No doubt about that. Debbie Lloyd, about you. You know, I'd like to uh, actually uh, pick up on that, that with Cheryl and uh, uh, being in the room when all the victims, the first court appearance where all the victims and their families came in. Uh, for me, it was just so fast that um, we knew that he was arrested, getting on the plane, coming there. I mean, you're thinking about your victims and because Orange County just had the four homicides, but Sacramento had, you know, in Contra Costa, it's, it's some of the other cases, uh, uh, counties did have more of the rape and especially Sacramento over 50. Um, I read all those cases and I knew all about those cases, but I was sitting in the courtroom and I wasn't even thinking about how they would be coming in. And I remember looking back and seeing all these women and they were like in their 60s. And it, then it was the first time it dawned on me, oh my gosh, those are the victims I've been reading about for the past year and what they went through. And I tell you, they were strong, powerful women. And uh, it was overwhelming, it really was. And I, I, even in court, I started kind of tearing up seeing that it was just so powerful. Um, I want to also get back to uh, what Tian said about uh, the plea. And I was probably before Tian, a little bit before the plea, and for the same reasons that uh, Tian actually uh, uh, spoke about, and that was because it was all for the victims. I mean, we had had victims pass away. We had had mothers and fathers of victims passed away. We knew how long the case was going to be. And they needed to see this. They needed a conviction uh, of their, of their uh, assaulter, of the murderer of their loved ones. And they got that. And they got that in spades. And uh, Tien and Amy and Anne-Marie, what you did as far as putting them all together in that room, that auditorium, there were, I don't know what, 200 of them in there. And uh, each one of them was strong. And not only the victims and the victims' families, but all those police officers that had made that a part of their lives too. Mm -hmm. And no uh, it was amazing and uh, very powerful. Very powerful. Uh, Dave, Alan Bezos. Yeah, I, you know, for me, 
I look at each of these cases that we prosecute. And when we file charges, particularly on a case that has a lot of uh, news um, value, I guess you could say, it's the central character is always the defendant and it's focused on them and the victims are pushed aside and they stay pushed aside. And the longer the case goes on, the less it seems like the focus is on them. And we were looking at a case that could have gone on for literally, you know, the better part of a decade before we get to trial. Mm -hmm. And who would have been left uh, was a big concern of mine. I met with uh, one of the key witnesses in this case in October of uh, 2019, and he was very important for the Visalia side and spoke with him, talked to him. He was um, quite energetic, although he was in his mid 80s. And unfortunately, he passed a month later. Um, and I saw, you know, this come together at the sentencing, at the impact statements, and that focus that had been on the Golden State Killer, the EAR, the Visalia Ransacker, all of these different names started to change. And over a week of listening to the people, listening to their stories, listening to the impact this had on their lives, their families' lives, it really changed the focus to where it really should be, and that is on the victims. And I appreciated listening to it. You know, I went um, to the entire week of the impact statements because I felt that it was such an important process to hear from them. And, you know, I went back to my desk every night. I was, you know, we, we're in this business, we've all been in this business a long time, and we become used to, I hate to say, the, the horrific things that happen to people. Um, but that was a raw week is how I would describe it. It was a, I went back, I, oftentimes I wrote down what people said because uh, you have to hear it to understand the consequences of crime. I mean, there's things I will never forget. I'll never forget Gay Hardwick saying she chose to become a teacher because at least she wasn't afraid of children. Or Chris Pedretti's, talking about how she's saying, um, Jesus saved me uh, during her assault or all the others that came forward. And the words were so incredibly powerful that I hope, um, one, it was a moment for them to, as you say, some of you say to regain control, but also for those that watched that hearing to understand that crime does have consequences. And for many of these folks, it was life altering. Um, so, but, but truly impactful, no doubt about that. Um, let me just kind of wrap it up. Last question for all of you is, um, you know, what, what would you say this case has had either on you or the profession as a long-term consequence? And, um, maybe I'll start with you, Debbie, because I, I know you, you still do this work. You still do cold cases, right? Yes, I'm working part-time right now in the uh, science and technology, and we are doing uh, investigative genetic genealogy cases, and uh, we have quite a few of them now. Um, but actually, the effect is, has been good and bad um, on me because, because I did have the case for a year before he was caught, 
and reading all the cases um, and not only reading all the cases of what um, what he had done to all these women and 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 victims and men, um, but also in in trying to investigate it and looking at so many serial killers out there and so many bad people. And you know, we pulled all of them, trying to you know see if their DNA was taken. And I tell you, um, got extra locks for the house. Um, it. You hear about it, you watch TV where they have these horrific things going on, but you're actually living it and it actually happened and it was real. And uh, I tell you, it, it, I think about it constantly. What happened to these women, what this guy did, how people could do that to other people, and that'll stay with me forever. And that's something that I didn't have in the nine years of working in homicides or the three years in working in sexual assault. This was totally different. This was just far and above horror. Um, that actually did happen. And so that'll always be with me. And that's a bad thing. <laughs> uh, right. The good thing was seeing all the victims and the, and the, uh, and I don't even, you know, they're not even really victims because they're just strong women that survived. And um, uh, to me, that is, uh, that is so powerful. And uh, um, getting them to get to see what happened to me, I mean, it was all such a good thing. The camaraderie, the getting through the case, actually solving it with you and and, and uh, Ventura. I mean, that was just amazing, and it wouldn't have been done. And so, I think all these things. It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of very good things and and also a lot of uh, bad things because that'll be with me forever. So, but just to to lead to one thing that I think is important to emphasize when you you mention this genetic genealogy is. Uh, this has changed the world, right, Debbie? I mean, you know, oh. your office is very, very active in these cases. And um, the last I saw across this country, I mean, why don't you tell the listeners how many cases have been either an arrest has happened or convictions happened or they've identified the person. Uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I think it's like over 150 now since Golden State Killer, which was actually the catalyst. And then boom, they just started happening right after that. And I tell you, there's charts where you can see just victims and victims and victims and defendants that boom, hit, 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 hit. I mean, it, 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 it has changed the world. It, 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 it's amazing. And you don't think now that you will get a serial killer like you did back in the 70s and 80s that are going to go on for 40 years. And right. uh, that's also a good thing. Well, Amy, you're the cold case queen over there at the DA's office in Sacramento. I mean, I mean, you, you're seeing the consequences the, the wonderful consequences of genetic genealogy, right? We are, um, you know, our group's been working hard on these cases. We just had our sixth um, arrest and prosecution um, from an IgG solve, which is great. Um, and we're still working hard on, on other cases that are unsolved. And I've really enjoyed one takeaway for me from this case is, is moving investigative genetic genealogy forward by educating detectives, by educating the public about the process and what it means and, and having people understand what it's like to you know, approach victims or victim, victims' families you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later and, and really changing their lives and letting them know that they weren't forgotten, their cases weren't forgotten, and that we're able to solve them and move forward. It's been very rewarding in that respect for me. Excellent. Um, how about Kelly, how about you? Well, I think uh, along the lines of something Debbie said, you know, we, 
working in this business and what we do, we, we find a way to disassociate ourselves so often with the horror that we see. And, and I think for all of us, um, this was a case that in such a short period of time, we all had to get up to speed and, and know intimately the details of all of the crimes he committed. And it's really the stuff of your nightmares. It's something that uh, I'll never forget. It's the one case that, that, you know, there's always the one that hits you right between the eyes, right? And this is that one. And so that for me will stick with me forever. But also the persistence and dogged determination that Anne-Marie, you and the task force, everyone had and really, you know, putting forth investigative gene genetic genealogy as the newest and greatest tool that law enforcement has to solve all these crimes is unique and amazing. And it just shows the innovation that, um, that is available to us and, uh, and, it, and it will prevent crimes in the future. And that's just, it's incredible really to have been a part of it. Um, particularly, you know, I personally was so very skeptical that there was, you know, this person was still alive. And to have been so, so gladly uh, to be so wrong was, was really great. But then one more thing that, that I think has really stuck with me after this case is the collaboration that um, we all had working together. I've been able to use some of those um, techniques on working in other teams now. And, you know, that's not normally something we as prosecutors were kind of like sole, you know, uh, lawyers into ourselves and you know, this really um, stretched me in, in the ability to collaborate with others. And uh, I'm, I'll be forever thankful for that. Excellent. Very good point. Cheryl, how about you? Oh, it's funny, Kelly, you said exactly right. The ability to work, you know, the, the teamwork and, and Amory, you get a huge amount of credit for this and the Sacramento uh, team. Mm -hmm really just set it up nicely that we were so much better together as a team because of that collaboration and it, it was beautiful. But there's two other things though that, that are takeaways for me and Anne-Marie, it really um, is a credit to you. And one is IgG, as Debbie was talking about it too, this tool has completely changed the landscape. And as lawyers, we're so used to, you know, relying on the tried and true. What's the legal precedent? Do we have a court of appeal decision that affirms what we're doing is correct? You know, we don't want to stretch too much for fear of, of making a mistake or, you know, of course, if we don't want to trample anyone's rights or, or anything like that. But yet there, there are times when we have at our disposal these, these techniques that are out there or a new path, a new approach. And IgG was one of them. And now, Marie, you were fearless in that. You, you led the charge on really pushing to use this technology to try and solve some of these heinous crimes. And tremendous. It, it's extraordinary. And I don't know anyone else, you and Greg Totten, I know really uh, deserve the credit for solving this case. Well, the, Paul Holes gets the, Paul Holes <laughs> gets the credit for the idea. There's no question about that. Well, Perhaps, it, you know, persistence solved it, but you know, many people on that team that were instrumental in the, the tree building and, and, you know, the science and all that. So, uh, you know, True. I'll take credit for being a persistent one, but I, I won't take credit for the idea. 
Okay, fair enough. But from the prosecutor's perspective, you really did lead the way for, for a lot of us. Yeah, uh, and that is the second thing that I wanted to mention. And it's again, it's about just learning to view things a little bit differently. And that was the way we resolved the case. And, you know, early on, there was um, a lot of concern amongst some of the victims whose crimes could not be charged because of statute of limitations. Right because of the absence of the of physical evidence to help tie him in, uh, we had some challenges there. And the way we wrapped this case up and we all made a pledge to the victims, we talked about it a team, as a team and we met with the victims and shared this with them that no matter what, every victim was going to be included in this case. You were either going to be an 1101B evidence where we were going to bring this victim's count in or the, the a crime in to show a pattern of some sort to help bolster another charge defense. Uh, it was going to be a charge defense, or we were going to get it in in our penalty phase as another act of violence, but no victim was going to be forgotten. And that was the way we planned to try the case. And that was the way we resolved the case is that we were not going to entertain anything that did not give every victim the right to stand up uh, and give their, their statement about what the crime meant to them and to face him if they so choose. And the fact that, you know, sort of the no one left behind, uh, that will stay with me. As a, it was a very unique resolution in our profession and I'm quite proud of it. This case highlighted for me, um, there's, there's a, a case that sits um, in my uh, for a long time, it sat in my office in a box and, you know, it, it just, it sits there and it, it weighs on me of a little girl who was kidnapped and uh, left on the side of a road. No witnesses, no leads. And to me, there is an opportunity here to bring some resolution of that case into the family. Um, there's many cases like that. And uh, this gives us a viable way of going after people years after the fact when there are no other leads. And I appreciate all the people who made that possible. You know, before I end with you, Tim, I just, I wanna highlight that, you know, it's, it's not just a tool of identifying people, but we now know that it's also a tool of exonerating people. And, you know, I'm very proud that our office was involved in a case um, of a neighboring county a guy named Ricky Davis, who um, was exonerated, not because of DNA, but that the person that is now charged was identified through genetic genealogy. So it's something that I hope the listeners understand. It is a tool of really the truth, no matter where that truth leads us. Um, but, but finally here, Tin Ho, maybe you can wrap it up for us in terms of the impact you think this case has had on you and, and our profession. You know, Debbie and uh, a number of us have talked about how there's been 150 plus cases that have been solved through investigative genetic genealogy. That's 150 defendants that were brought to justice, 150 victims that obtained a measure of closure and justice, 150 families. It's not just a box or a, a dusty file that sits on somebody's desk. These are families and victims. And so the impact that this case has had is really on our justice system and on victims. And we, if we were to take a step back, the first time they ever presented fingerprint evidence in the courtroom, the first time they ever presented DNA evidence in the courtroom, it was revolutionary. 
And to think that we were there the very first time IgG was used to really solve a case of such magnitude is groundbreaking and historical. But if you were to strip away all that stuff, what we're left behind is this, why do we become prosecutors? It was for victims, to make sure that victims, um, that their voices were never silenced and that they had a measure of justice and that they um, were never forgotten. And I think the legacy of this case, whether it was you, Anne Marie, and, and the task force, whether it was each county and law enforcement, whether it was this new technology, the legacy of this case is to maybe remind people and tell people that victims would not be silenced and not forgotten. And that's the lasting impact of this case. Yeah, very, very powerful. Well, for the listeners out there, I hope each of you understand, um, having listened to these folks, why they became part of Team Justice. Um, it is an extraordinary team. Uh, I'm so proud uh, the way that this case was handled and ultimately the way it was resolved. So I want to thank each of you. I'm going to start uh, Debbie Lloyd, Cheryl Temple, Tim Ho, Dave Alavezos, Amy Holliday, and Kelly Duncan. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your feelings about this case and the impact it's had, not just on you personally, but also our profession. Um, for the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all very much. Thank you. Great to see you, Anne-Marie.